Disciples aren't greater than their teacher, and slaves aren't greater than their master. It's enough for disciples to be like their teacher and slaves like their master. If they've called the head of the household Beelzebul, it's certain that they will call the members of his household by even worse names. Therefore, don't be afraid of those people, because nothing is hidden that won't be revealed, and nothing secret that won't be brought out into the open. What I say to you in the darkness, tell in the light. And what you hear whispered, announce from the rooftops. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a small coin? But not one of them will fall to the ground without your father knowing about it already. Even the hairs of your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who acknowledges me before people, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But everyone who denies me before people, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. People's enemies are members of their own households. Those who love father or mother more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who love son or daughter more than me aren't worthy of me. Those who don't pick up their crosses and follow me aren't worthy of me. Those who find their lives will lose them, and those who lose their lives because of me will find them. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. When I hear this scripture today, I wonder what happened to peace on earth, goodwill to all men. At Jesus' birth, right, that's what the angels proclaimed, that this somehow was establishing peace on earth, goodwill to all. And Jesus' ministry seems like it is going to establish the reign of God, God's kingdom on earth, the true peace in the world over and against the peace of Rome that Rome was trying to establish basically through military dominance. So how do we understand Jesus when he says, don't think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? Now, at first, when we hear that, we might think, surely Jesus isn't saying that. Like, I must have misheard him or read it wrong. Let me go back and check. And then he doubles down on it and he says, I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword. Gosh, I wish Jesus wouldn't have said this. I wish I could just sweep it away and say Jesus is always about peace. He never condones violence of any kind or even talks about it. We could probably call these few Sundays here in this Gospel of Matthew, things my Sunday school teacher didn't tell me about Jesus. Like, like the stories that happen when we get, be, or we could call it beyond the flannel graph. Did anyone have a flannel graph in a Sunday school classroom? Those of us that have a certain ilk in a certain era did. I did even. And so um, those y- youngsters among us, a flannel graph was like, was like a projection screen with 
without digital things, right? And so if it was like a felt board and you had like a little thing of Jesus and you put him up there and he would just stay. And then you could take him around and you'd go to the, see the sheep. There were always sheep on the flannel graph. And um, there were just a lot of sheep. And, and, and maybe a few disciples and everyone looked, they were wearing like robes like they were supposed to. And that's what the flannel graph was. We could call this series Beyond the Flannel Graph because really what happens is that we start to read Jesus and darn, it's not as simple and as easy as it seemed at first right? So what's the problem with Jesus saying that he's coming to bring not peace but a sword? Well, I see two main problems with it today that I want to start with. Problem number one is that it's an excuse for what I would call zealot violent crazies, okay? You have to wonder if when Jesus said this, if some of his followers, including a disciple or two, were cheering him on. Some of his disciples, we learned, are zealots, a group that was ready for the Messiah to come in and to assemble a militia and take things on from Rome by brute force. That's what a zealot was. So we don't have to go too far to see how a group could use this verse from Jesus and say Jesus came to bring the sword. So let's go and attack the things that we hate, the things that we say stand against God. So we think about then a group like Westboro Baptist Church picketing at a funeral and yelling hateful things against someone and how they could say, see, Jesus came not to bring peace, but a sword. We're following him into that way. We can think of justification for extremist groups that rise up to power, all in the name of Jesus, whether it's from the time of the Crusades to the rise of Hitler, all excused by being convinced that they were right. Now, in your free time, Macedonia United Methodist Church, I don't think that you are part of a hate speech community like Westboro Baptist. I'm also not convinced that you are part of some extremist group just as part of your spare time. However, what I want you to see is that one verse plucked from its context is like pouring gasoline on a fire. (laughs) Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. So therefore, we can justify basically anything we want to do as long as we are in the right Jesus says, the poor you will always have among you. So see, we don't really need to actually care about sharing our resources with the downtrodden and the poor because Jesus said they'd always be there. So can we take Jesus literally here? Or is there more that Jesus wants us to see and understand? So problem one is is excuses for the violent crazies. The zealot violent crazies, that's what I call them there. Problem number two is what I would call the victim complex. This is the understanding that the sword is already being brought against someone all of the time. They see their lives as Christians as perpetually the victim. Preachers are really great at conjuring this up. Stand up for Jesus because our values and our way of life are under attack The sword is being brought against you just like you have been promised and it happened when they took prayer out of schools or when white people were going to be outnumbered by people of color in our country. The message of that is your way of life, specifically that way of life of 1950s America, is under attack. You're the victim then of the sword. Aren't you suffering? The victim complex starts to sound pretty pitiful in a country where we are allowed to assemble and to worship God like this. Sometimes in the church, this victim complex gets presented 
as nostalgia. We romanticize the past without recognizing the problems that were there. We look at it all through rose-colored glasses. The reality is there were problems then just like there are now. There were conflicts. There was inequity. Now there is nothing wrong with looking back to the past, remembering it, remembering it fondly. There is something dangerous, however, about feeling like we're under attack and that we're a victim just because the world has changed. Friends, we are not an oppressed people. The difficulty of reading this passage literally is that we have not really had a lot of suffering for the gospel in our time. Now the answer to that does not lie in this, in saying you haven't done enough for God, so you haven't been oppressed. That's where I used to take texts like this from Jesus. I would feel this burden upon me like, well, I haven't been oppressed, therefore I haven't actually done enough for God or I am not committed enough in my relationship with God, otherwise I would be oppressed. I would read Jesus in the Beatitudes and take him literally when he says, blessed are the poor, I would say, well, I, I should be poor, I should be suffering, I should be merciful, I should be meek, I should be mourning, because those are the characteristics of the ones whom Jesus blesses in the Beatitudes. By that logic, then, my faith should lead me to relationships that are being destroyed, is what Jesus talks about in this text today. Because I'm really following Jesus, not like those other people who aren't suffering. So this naturally, then, would lead to a self-righteousness that makes a person feel like the victim. So those two problems, excusing zealous, violent crazies and the victim complex, are real problems of taking Jesus literally here, at least in a certain way. So then where is hope? Like, how, how do we faithfully take Jesus at his word when he says this? I think we have to place ourselves alongside the marginalized and the downtrodden in our world. It's what I want to call today the essential work of solidarity. I want to look to someone, Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was Archbishop of El Salvador in the Catholic Church from 1978 to 1980. In the 1970s, their government utilized the army to try and put down and stamp out the poor who were speaking up for their rights. And during his time as Archbishop, Romero preached weekly on Sunday mornings for an AM broadcast to galvanize the poor in their country who were literally facing the sword. And ultimately, the sword came for Romero too, as he was murdered while saying mass in March of 1980. Romero said this, the violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work. Now we hear echoes of other scriptures there in what Romero says. Echoes of beating our swords into plowshares. Echoes of the tools of violence becoming tools for harvest. Friends, solidarity as Christian people is not an optional activity for us. This is enacting the Atticus Finch walking in someone else's shoes. This is even beyond empathy. 
And we have to begin here in this place of solidarity to understand this passage. In their book, Faith-Rooted Organizing, Alexia Salvatierra and Peter Hutzel say this. They say, solidarity is a term commonly used in Latin America to describe the commitment and engagement of those who are not poor in struggles for justice. Those who are engaged in solidarity are committed to a partnership with the poor that rectifies the imbalances of our society. A partnership with the poor is how they describe solidarity. The reality, right, is that people like Oscar Romero and Desmond Tutu and Martin Luther King led efforts that understood the reality of facing the sword. They understood the cost of following Jesus. It may even cost you your life. And then we enter into what I would call the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution, right? We knew Copernicus, right? He taught that the sun was the center of the universe, not or, or of our, you know, of our solar system, that, it, that, that everything didn't revolve around the earth. And that was considered heresy at the time. People wanted to burn Copernicus at the stake for saying such things. The Copernican Revolution, I think, that happens in all of our lives and that needs to happen is this, that you and me are not the center of the universe. A lot of people who call themselves Christians have not gotten to this place. This is the move out of adolescence in faith and into adulthood. At some point, we realize that we are not the center of the universe. And what a hard space that is when we finally realize it. Oscar Romero said this, he said, what is God's way of thinking? It is higher than our thoughts. And blessed be God, God does not identify with human thinking. Many indeed would like, as the song says, a pocket God, a God to get along with their idols, a God satisfied with the way they pay their workers, a God who approves of their atrocities. How can people pray the Our Father to that God when they treat him as one of their servants or one of their employees? Romero challenges us here that God is not in our pocket or God is not made in our image. God is the center and we can orient our lives to God's ways. So when we join our lives with the poor and marginalized communities, then we begin to see the world as God sees it. Our lives are rightly oriented to what is indeed and who is indeed at the center. Even among those who experience the sword, Followers of Jesus are those who put down their sword for the sake of redeeming their oppressor. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Peter goes and he cuts off one of the guard's ears, right? And Jesus says to him, put down your sword. If we're going to take Jesus literally, we have to figure out when Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword, and then he tells Peter to put down his sword. We followers of Jesus do not wield a sword. Instead, we recognize the impossibility of retributive justice. And we trust in God's capacity to work forgiveness, mercy, and even peace through us. So yes, we may face the sword. Communities of Christians through all time have experienced the division that Jesus is talking about. The kind of division that causes you to have to choose between Jesus and between the closest relationships in your life. 
That is the reality that Jesus is addressing here. And the hope that Jesus offers is the hope of solidarity, the hope of transforming even the oppressor. And when we recognize the hopefulness in the face of adversity, we look to the witness of people like Oscar Romero. He stood his ground with the powerless, those who are facing the sword. And he offered them the hope of God's liberation here and now and ultimately forever. Friends, this is the hope of God's peace, not an empty slogan, but the reality of peace on earth for all. I invite you to join the revolution of God and God's kingdom where God is rightfully at the center of the universe. Let us pray. Lord God,